0: this winter that we're talking about in this chapter of Saints, they talk about it getting down to like 30 below zero. And that's cold even for Salt Lake City, but they're just shocked this is happening. And then they talk about the growing season in 1849 saying, listen, we had frost like every month of the year. And they're just trying to come to grips with this new climate, this high altitude and trying to scrape by and trying to make their crops last for for that whole amount of time.
1: Welcome to The Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey.
2: And I'm Shaylin Back. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today we're going to be discussing Chapter 8 of Saints Volume 2, This Time of Scarcity.
1: And today we have joining us an editor with The Saints Project, Nathan Waite. Welcome, Nate. Thanks. It's good to be here. Nate, maybe you could start off just telling our listeners just a teeny bit about you and uh, your role in The Saints Project. Sure. So I've been an
0: editor in the Church History Department for almost 12 years. I started on the Joseph Smith Papers Project and still work on that. And then a few years ago, I got invited to help out on the Saints Project, which has been a wonderful change of pace and really enjoy working on both of
1: those. Nate is also an author and an editor of other books. You've done some work with Zion's Canyon. Mm -hmm. You've done some work with the Epistles of the First Presidency, which is going to be helpful for our episode today. And we're looking forward to talking with you about that. So in Chapter 8 of Saints, Volume 2, we have one of our favorite characters, at least Shaylin and I are favorite characters, yes (laughs) um, Addison and Louisa Pratt, and they're about to have a wonderful reunion. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like and maybe help our listeners remember that part of the story?
3: Yeah,
0: you bet. And I have kind of a personal story about this story too because as I was working on Volume 1, we had this, you might remember, we left the Pratt family on the docks in yeah. Nauvoo and Addison was leaving to go right. to the islands. And I call her Loisa. I've heard that. I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but I'll probably say Loiza because that's what I've heard. But So when I heard this story, I thought, oh man, I want to find out what happens. So I went into Addison Pratt's diary, which has been published, and said, well, what's the reunion like several years later? And it is a tender reunion, but I think there's also some bittersweetness to it. And for me, it was a reminder that being a Latter-day Saint doesn't mean it's always... Everything's not always perfect. Uh, Moments that you may be looking forward to, there might be a little bit of disappointment too. So I think this story is like that. You've got this wonderful reunion. You have to imagine they've been anticipating it for years and then it comes and Addison writes in in his journal a little bit about how surprised he was to see his wife and she's had some hardships. She's crossed the plains on her own. She's been malnourished and her teeth have fallen out and it's really sad. We we were talking about that
1: before we started recording. You have to imagine she must be feeling super self-conscious about the whole situation and like he doesn't recognize her voice. Mm-hmm. It's tough.
0: But in that, mixed in is this joy of this family being reunited. And then there's also the complication. He's been gone for, what, five years? And the younger kids especially don't recognize him, and they're kind of weirded out by him at first, and he has to kind of win back their trust. And the way he does that is with gifts. I can relate a little bit with that. Every once in a while, I'll have to travel somewhere for work, and I get home, and my kids are just as excited to find out what I brought them (laughs) as they are to see me. And in this case, his little daughter, who's now, I think, eight years old, Ann, she is not at all warm to him because she hasn't had a dad in her life for all these years because of the sacrifice that they have all made for the kingdom of God. So he starts laying out seashells and, and candies that he's brought back from the islands. And then she, she she's kind of won over and realizes, okay, I can be okay with this. And, and then they start to b- build their lives again together. Well, and you mentioned
2: that they were building
0: the kingdom of God. I actually loved something that Louisa said. She said
2: nothing short of the building of the kingdom right? of God could justify such a long separation because like we've talked about, so much had changed in their family that they didn't even recognize each other. And then right. not only did their family change, but there were a lot of changes in the church that Addison coming to the, for the first time to the Salt Lake Valley. I mean, let's talk about some of those changes.
0: What's he experiencing? You've got a lot of new members. The church has been infused with a lot of members from Europe. And of course, we have the new practice of plural marriage is the big one that he himself isn't practicing, but he sees a lot around in the church, and he has to kind of wrap his head around that. And so the church is in a totally different place, has a totally different makeup, and they have these new practices and doctrines that he's not familiar with, and he's got to come to grips with those. And it's interesting, as we continue on in future chapters, we're going to read a lot more about the Prats and how their life takes unexpected turns and the heartaches and the joys that they experience as Latter-day Saints. And I love their story because it's not this cut and dry, everything's great, Sort of story. They have hardships and they have to work things out. I love that that is part of saints is is these complicated and true to life stories.
1: That might be a good point for us to talk about the valley, as they're here in the valley and during these very first few years. If I'm remembering correctly, it tells us in the chapter there's something like four thousand saints who have settled here now. A lot of them are living in wagons. They have tents. We have a story in the chapter about a tent burning down. What is it like? What have you learned about conditions here in those first few years?
0: Yeah, um, and, and the point of view that Saints uses in this chapter is Eliza Partridge. Now, Eliza Partridge Lyman and how she's trying to make do living in a tent for a while. The tent burns down and then she moves to a city lot and they don't have a house yet, but she's kind of there and starting out. It was tough for early Latter-day Saints, and the records indicate that these were some of the harshest winters that they'd ever experienced. These general epistles that the First Presidency starts writing in 1849, they're kind of like newsletters. They inform saints around the world what's going on in Salt Lake. They're trying to persuade members to gather to Salt Lake City, those that haven't yet. I think they're also trying to tell the world, hey, guess what? We left. We're starting out on our own, and we're doing just fine. Thanks very much. But they also kind of report on these harsh conditions, if I can pull one out. In this 1849 epistle, this winter that we're talking about in this chapter of Saints, they talk about it getting down to like 30 below zero. And that's cold even for Salt Lake City, but they're just shocked this is happening. And then they talk about the growing season in 1849 saying, listen, we had frost like every month of the year. And they're just trying to come to grips with this new climate, this high altitude, and trying to scrape by and trying to make their crops last for, for that whole amount of time and Eliza is in the middle of all this and it talks about how she's kind of plowing in hope so to speak. She's planning a garden she's starting to plant fruit trees and what I think is interesting about that is that this is the city of Zion that Joseph Smith laid out, right? He said, we need to have these city blocks and everybody needs to have their yard with gardens and fruit trees. And so even in the midst of all these hardships, they're doing that. They are laying out the city of Zion finally. And and we have that today, right? The city of Salt Lake and, and so many other of these pioneer settlements have that grid, have those lovely yards with trees and canals running down them. To the extent that decades later or in the coming decades, Mark Twain, John Muir, other famous people come and visit and they all comment on this beautiful valley that is irrigated and, and so well organized. And that didn't come out of nothing. These saints, in the midst of these harsh winters and terrible living conditions, they were really laying the foundation for what we see today here.
1: It's funny you mentioned the, the city of Zion. On the Joseph Smith Papers website, you can see the plat that right. was drawn out. And what's amazing to me is if you look at that and then you think about cities all across the state of Utah, along in the Intermountain West, all the way to Colonial Juarez and Cardston in Canada, mm-hmm. it's the grid. Yep. It's the pattern that was laid out on that document and it really is quite incredible that it was followed to such a degree that they really truly wanted to build Zion the way the prophet had told them to.
0: The famous Western historian Wallace Stigner talks about traveling through and you can always tell a Mormon village what he calls them <laughs> because they have the grid, they have the Lombardy poplars and that's <laughs> the legacy that was left.
2: So Nate, you brought up the example of Eliza Partridge Lyman, just kind of as an example
0: of what's going on in the valley at this time. Can you tell us more about her and what's going on with her life? Yeah. And again, we're going to bring in another character that we know and love from volume one, and that's uh, Jane Manning, now James. So she is a black member of the church who lived in the Smith household. You'll remember that Eliza Partridge Lyman was a plural wife of, of Joseph. And so they knew each other, Jane and Eliza. And we find out that in this period when she is struggling to make ends meet, that's Eliza, Jane comes along and and gives her some food. And Jane herself certainly is in a tough position herself, But of what little she has, she brings her a couple pounds of flour or something along those lines.
2: Because of these kind of harsh conditions and difficulties that they were having and scarcity of food, during this time, there's reports of gold in California. And that to me sounds
0: like it would be great. (laughs) More temperate temperatures. And so what did the saints do? It's ironic in a way that the saints left the United States to come to what was then Mexico to get away from everybody. And within a couple of years everybody's coming back to them because of this gold rush. And there are certainly saints that are interested in going out there, I think for the temperate climates, like you say, and also for the possibility of getting rich. But Brigham Young's not really interested in that at all. He's interested in sending missionaries to see if they can help the church financially and also use that as opportunities to further the church's goals. But he's really worried that the saints head out there, they're going to make riches and that sort of thing their focus instead of making building Zion their focus. And so he's really wary of saints going out there and he warns them against He says, let's stay here. Let's build this place. Let's not let the allure of that gold pull us away from this goal of building
1: Zion together. Let's go back east for just a minute and talk about Oliver Cowdery. Oliver, in this chapter, arrives in Canesville. and can you just remind us what's happening with Oliver, who has been disaffected and has been out of the church for a while, but what's going on that's brought him back to Canesville?
0: Uh, That's a really good question. And we have some insights into that. That he has, in the last 10 years of his life, he's kind of checked out the various other movements that have started through the restoration, through David Whitmer and other people. And he's come to the determination that for him, they don't have the authority that he himself experienced, right? It was him and Joseph there on the banks of the Susquehanna River that received that authority. So he has a testimony of that. And certainly he had some rocky times later. Again, kind of this bittersweet element. Uh, He and Joseph never were reconciled, right? The last kind of exchange of letters they have in 1838, they basically say, yeah, we used to be really good friends, but that's over now. We're done. And it's too late for him to reconcile with Joseph, unfortunately. But he has come to this determination that his place is with the saints that are going west. And so he reunites with them here and humbly puts himself forth and says, hey, I used to be a big deal in the church, but I realize that's past, and now I just want to be an everyday member. I want to be rebaptized, if you'll have me.
1: Let's listen to a quote here from the book that describes that scene.
3: Orson Hyde put the decision to a vote. It is moved, he said, that Brother Oliver be received by baptism and that all old things be forgotten. The men voted unanimously in Oliver's favor. One week later, Orson baptized him, welcoming him back to the gospel fold.
1: I love the fact that Oliver returns, and later in the book we're going to have another reunion with another one of the witnesses, Martin Harris, but in this part of the book, Oliver gives a wonderful testimony, and he reminds them, kind of paraphrasing, but he reminds them I wrote it. I wrote the Book of Mormon as it came from Joseph's lips, almost every single page. And he is true to that testimony of the things that he saw. And he's telling them, I was there. And it kind of amazes me that here's this man who he, along with Joseph, was the first baptized. They received the priesthood from John the Baptist and Peter, James and John. And he's coming back really rather humbly and saying, "Can you rebaptize me with the authority that I was there when it was restored?"
0: Yeah, that is that is quite a scene. And what I also like about it is, I mean, there are some serious backstory here. There are some serious grievances on both sides. And it takes Oliver humbly saying, submitting himself and saying, will you be baptized me? And it takes the church saying, okay, we're willing to let bygones be bygones. I love how it says we're going to let old things pass away and they're just going to start again fresh. It takes humility and reconciliation on both sides to move forward when you've had past negative experiences.
1: Yeah, it's quite an example for us individually, but, you know, as a church too
2: hmm It's just neat because it really is never too late for people to come back if they want to. There's other people there to support you. And I just, I love Oliver too. I'm so glad that he comes back and his testimony. is so powerful at the end. He just said, if you will walk by its light and obey its precepts, you will be saved in the everlasting kingdom of God. And it's really powerful because he's been away. And so he kind of has had time to ponder that, I think, and really what that means. And then come back and be ready to jump back in and and live that.
1: So coming west again here in the territory, you mentioned earlier about the conditions that had been there. What about government? You can remind us, I know you worked on the Council of 50 volume with the Joseph Smith Papers. Can you remind us what's the Council of 50 and then what was their role governing here in what became Utah Territory? Yeah. So
0: the Council of 50 was established back in Nauvoo by Joseph Smith. And it was basically, this is the group of people that will govern the kingdom of God. When the day comes that Christ is here and the kingdom of God becomes the government on the earth, these are the folks that are going to help out with that. And so this is kind of the political or the governmental organization, apart from the ecclesiastical organization you have with the Quorum of the Twelve and the Quorum of the Seventy, that is a church role. And this is seen as a more governmental role. And so when they come to Utah and they're Trying to establish a government, it makes sense that uh, Brigham Young reestablished this group to govern and to help make decisions. And so their big push here uh, now that the United States has has moved west and Utah or what became Utah is now part of the United States again is they want to become a territory. So they put forth a proposal to become the territory of Deseret. And if you've ever seen a map of it, it's huge. I mean it's it is it's huge. It's all of Utah, all of Nevada, most of Arizona, and parts <laughs> of California. In New Mexico, Colorado, Wyoming, Idaho, and even a little bit of Oregon. It's just wow. this massive area that they're saying, hey, let's make this deseret. And it'll be next, uh, the next year in 1850 that they do get a territory of deseret, but it's much smaller than that. It's still bigger than Utah as it includes a lot of Nevada, but uh, they really had uh, great ambitions for we the we West. We could have had a port.
1: I mean, this, yeah, this, the, right. the territory of deseret, we could have had right. a port. We could have had beaches. Well, and that was
2: the idea, to have a port to help facilitate people coming to
0: gather. Right. But with becoming a territory, there is a risk, as the chapter points out. uh, Unlike a state where you elect your own governor and that sort of thing, the territory, it's all appointed by the president. And so if you get folks who are not friendly to the Latter-day Saints, and this is going to bear out in future chapters, we're going to have trouble with, with the government again.
1: Yeah, this is kind of a cloud on the horizon. We've got some difficult times ahead because of federal appointees, judges, and others that come to Utah and are not particularly friendly or interested in learning about the saints, it, yeah, it, it, it's going to get a little difficult as we move forward.
0: And one other sign of clouds on the horizon that we start to get in this chapter is relations with the Native Americans in the, in the area. I was reading recently an article that Elder Marlon Jensen wrote. It was a talk he gave about Pioneer Day. And he pointed out, you know, there's another side to Pioneer Day, which is this was not an unpopulated wilderness when the saints came. These were established areas and territory of of Indians and especially the Utes. And we start to see some of the conflict as their scarcity. You've got 49ers coming across and they're using the same... Grass that everybody else needs, and you've got the the Latter Day Saints that are starting to use the same resources that these Indian tribes in there are using, and and we start to see these conflicts as the Indians try to figure out how do we survive in this with with a lot more competition for these resources. We start to see some skirmishes here. We start to see Brigham Young develop a policy uh, that's famously called the feed 'em instead of fight 'em, or that sort of thing, and. We learn more about that, uh, the relationships between Latter-day Saints and the Indians.
1: We've got some really good episodes coming up where we're going to talk with different folks in church history and representatives of the Native American community that talk about some of those experiences. So I just encourage our listeners to keep listening to future episodes because we're going to learn a lot more about that, about the experiences of Native peoples here in the Intermountain West when the pioneers came. Nate, Brigham Young has a wonderful quote, and we should have talked about this earlier, but I can't let it pass by. (laughs) It's one of my favorites. Even amongst these difficulties, this is what he says his worst fear is.
3: The worst fear that I have about this people, he said, is that they will get rich in this country, forget God and his people, wax fat, and kick themselves out of the church and go to hell.
0: What do you think about that? That's classic Brigham right there. Right, doesn't mince words. I think elsewhere he talks about, you know, the saints have been able to bear all these hardships and persecution, but I don't know if they'll be able to bear prosperity. I think we can relate a lot more to prosperity now than these times of hardship. And so question is can we rise to to Brigham's challenge and continue to stay faithful and to build Zion even in the midst of prosperity and instead of scarcity
2: well and it is a valid fear i mean we read about it in the book of mormon that when people prosper they start getting prideful right. and then that's when they forget god they really do and so that is just a valid fear <laughs> but it's amazing cuz he gave these promised blessings too he said if you will stay and not go you know to california like we've talked about before he said, God has shown me this is the spot to locate his people and he will temper the elements for the good of his saints. He will rebuke the frost and the sterility of the soil and the land shall become fruitful. And so I just try and put myself in their position and how they're coming out of these harsh winters and hard conditions. And that's probably a difficult vision to catch and to
1: see, but we've seen it now.
0: And like, <laughs> Reagan, you're worried incredible. about prosperity right now? Really?
1: Right. <laughs> yeah, that'd be hard. So we started our episode today talking about Addison and Louisa Pratt. We talked about a lot of things have changed. One of the things that has changed is Addison was not in Nauvoo, and so he didn't have an opportunity to participate in the temple endowment. Is that right?
0: That's right, yeah. This was was new to him.
1: So how are they going to take care of this when... There's no temple here. In the future, in the book and in, in future episodes, we'll talk about the endowment house that's mm-hmm. built.
2: Which was kind of like a temporary quick fix, right? To
0: have a place
2: to see right, even before they have right.
1: a uh, solution. So, what do they do, Nate?
0: They go to the tops of the mountains. Uh, in, in this case, they go up to Enzyme Peak, and that is this landmark. If you've been to Salt Lake City on on the north, you can see this knoll that stands out to the north of downtown Salt Lake. And they all hike up there, which is, you know, it's, it's a tough hike even now. And so they would go up there and they'd perform the, the endowment ceremony, which is pretty cool. It's cool to me to think about, and I'd be interested in you guys' insights too, but to me the, the the tops of mountains have always been holy places back from the Old Testament times. Right. And I think that's because it's away from people. And maybe I think part of it is because it takes work to get there and it takes a little bit of sacrifice of your body to get to this remote place, natural place, or more natural place where I think God's presence can be felt
1: more. Of the places that the endowment has been performed, the ceremonies have been performed. What places have those been? So we have the Nauvoo temple. We have, of course, the current temples. This was new to me. It happened on Insign Peak. We have the endowment house, a temporary place. Are there other places where we know the endowment was given prior to the temples being completed?
0: The one that comes to mind for me is, is back in Nauvoo, right? It, it's the first given in a store, right? And in, in up, upstairs from in the Red, Brick store. The Red Brick store, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Were there any other buildings in Salt Lake? I'm trying to remember. It seems like to me maybe the social hall or something before the council house. Was that? Yeah, that
0: might have been where another place that it was performed. But yeah, I like that. Although the Lord requires temples as a place of worship, a place to reveal his ordinances. He's also merciful. And in the meantime, he says, hey, you need these blessings. Let's allow you to do it in these other places.
2: So... Addison hadn't received his endowment because he'd been away. But another reason that it was an urgent need is because he and actually his family, they were called to go back to the Pacific Islands. And so I just think that's so cool, (laughs) thinking that your family is going to go on a mission together. And I feel like they were probably excited about this prospect. Tell me, is that something that was common to have families go on missions together? Or tell me about that situation.
0: Yeah. In other parts of this volume of Saints, there are several families and and couples that go out. And so that's wonderful to think about the long heritage of of sister missionaries, even before the formal calling of sister missionaries later on. We have entire families and we have husbands and wives going together and, and preaching the gospel. In this case, again, the, the Prats are such a wonderful, complex story. It's not going to turn out the way they expect. And and your heart just goes out to them. Oh, uh,
1: you've got to feel bad for Louisa. You know, she's planning
0: on this. It's exciting. Right. She's going to spend time with her husband who's been gone for all and this time. And then
1: the First Presidency or Brigham Young comes to them and says, it's just too dangerous. Yeah. You, you know, you better stay home. And
0: she has to, again, reconcile
1: herself with this
0: setback, uh, with this new sacrifice that living the gospel requires of her.
1: Let's listen to a little quote here from the book that kind of talks about this experience.
3: Louisa felt like heaven and earth had turned against her. She and Addison hardly spoke to each other. When alone, she prayed, freely venting her grief and pain to God. Will my sufferings never come to an end? She groaned. The day Addison left the valley, Louisa and Ellen rode with them to his campsite and stayed the night, In the morning, he blessed them, and they said goodbye. Although she had been dreading the farewell for weeks, Louisa felt comforted as she rode back to the fort, her heart much lighter than it had been for some time. That'd be so difficult, because you already got your husband
2: back, and to think about, okay, now we can work together as a family and make decisions as a family and, you know, build our homes and livelihood
0: as a family, and then he leaves. And that quote that you shared before, Shaylin, I think it sums it up. There's nothing else would have convinced me to make these sacrifices except building the kingdom of God. And if you're going to sit them down here, I would think and hope they'd say it was worth it. Like mm-hmm. What we did, it was hard, but it's not for you to say where it was too much or not, because it was our story.
1: Thank you so much, Nate, for, for joining us today. We appreciate your insights. We would invite our listeners, as always, you can reach out to us with questions or comments by emailing podcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. And you can read the latest chapters, watch the videos, connect to the church history topics at saints.churchofjesuschrist.org. I'm Ben Godfrey.
2: And I'm Shailen Back. Thanks again for listening.